readers, and welcome to episode 14 of Lost the Plot, the Tinted Edges monthly podcast all about books. I'm your host, Angharad, and today we have a special guest on the show who is going to give us some insight into what goes on in choosing winners for prestigious book awards, in particular children's books. I'd also like to quickly give a shout out to another Aussie book podcast I've been listening to recently called Seeking Tumnus, a show of four Aussies who dissect children's books, both new and classic. So if you like young adult fiction, give it a listen. The link is in the show notes and I would highly recommend it. The book updates this month are mostly to do with books that I've received. You might remember I won a prize in the World Builders Fundraiser, which is the brainchild of fantasy author Patrick Rothfuss, and my prize was a set of books by Michelle West. Well, they finally arrived in the mail and they are so pretty. And I also supported a book art project called Lost Rocks and I got my little crocoite. I think that's how you say that. Anyway, it's a type of stone. I got my little novella in the mail as well. Now, don't forget the great book swap run by the Indigenous Literacy Foundation is live for registrations. And with this year being the 50th year since the 1967 referendum, there are plenty of great dates to choose to run one in your school or office. For example, National Reconciliation Week is coming up on the 27th of May and it's running until the 3rd of June. Book news is heavily weighted this month in favour of film adaptations, but I'll quickly touch on some of the other things that have been going on first. I had two pieces of particularly exciting personal news. The first was that my partner bought me a bookshelf, which is basically the best news ever, and you can see my first go at using it to display all of my prettiest books in the show notes. The second is that I got accepted to do an art exhibition called Pulpture with local Canberra publisher Blemish Books, repurposing remainder books. You might have seen a bit of stuff about it if you follow the Tinted Edges Facebook page, but I'll talk more about it in next month's episode, and you can see a taste of what I got up to in the show notes. I managed to stumble across some literary history while I was traveling interstate for a wedding. I was staying at a place in the regional town of Orange called the Templars Mill. After I checked in, and now this is in New South Wales, by the way, so after I checked in, I saw a little information booklet um, and I was really interested to see that there was meant to be a display of original bricks from Banjo Patterson, Australia's most famous poet's birthplace. So I was excited and when I checked out the next morning, I asked at reception if I could see them, only to be told that they had covered up the bricks with a display of fake plants. Devastated. So I was meant to be going along to a family post-wedding breakfast shindig. So look, I just shrugged and I figured, okay, well, I better get going. I'll, I'll just have to come back to Orange some other time to see bricks from Banjo Patterson's birthplace. Then, as luck would have it, while I was driving out to the breakfast, I saw the Banjo Patterson Park coming up on my right. I managed to stop my car just in time and I spent a beautiful 20 minutes in the gorgeous park listening to the audio information, enjoying all the sculptures and they even had some of bricks from his original birthplace. Then, also in April, I was visited by some ghosts of my bookish past. 
I recently came to be in possession of a bunch of my stuff from when I was in primary school, high school, and university, and I found a couple of really interesting mementos that will be completely in theme with our discussion later on. So in between all of the posters of boys from 1990s TV shows and third place swimming ribbons, I've managed to find some real little treasures. There were some Animorphs postcards, and if you didn't read this when you were a kid growing up in the 1990s, Animorphs is a book series, science fiction, um, about kids who can turn into animals by um, K.A. Applegate. Anyway, so I found some postcards from when I had signed away all of my pocket money to go halvesies with my mum to get two new Animorph books delivered to me courtesy of Scholastic Books each month, plus a poster newsletter and some little things like um like these postcards and i can vividly remember the anticipation of getting a new parcel every month and ultimately the bitter disappointment when instead of all the cool stuff i started um i got at the beginning i started getting photocopies of newsletters or didn't get a new poster or got the same poster as i got last time and um basically thank you scholastic book club i've learned not to sign up to any kind of mail order anything so Another treasure I found is a Hogwarts plastic folder completely covered in and filled with stickers and torn out posters of the likes of Ryan Phillip, Philippe, Heath Ledger, Usher, Eminem and Ja Rule out of my Dolly magazines. Anyway, I also found some vintage Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone school book stickers that must have been released in a time... Um, when the first movie of the franchise had just come out. So is there a market for these? Should I run a kind of contest or something? Um, comment on the SoundCloud Facebook page, uh, the WordPress site, if you're interested in 20-year-old Harry Potter school book sticker sheets that are only missing two stickers on there. There's like two sheets of them. If you want them, let me know. I will send them to you. Um, one memory that revived some feelings of outrage, though, was a certificate from the MS Readathon, which, for those of you playing at home, is a fundraising campaign um, that, at least when I was in school, it used to be run at primary schools where kids would read as many books as they can, uh, as many books as they could, to raise money for multiple sclerosis. Now, Every year I entered the MS Readathon hoping to win one of the awesome prizes uh, for raising the most money. And they would have like bikes, they would have like, you know, really cool, awesome prizes. And every year I read as many books as I could. And I asked all the adults in my immediate vicinity to sponsor me, but every year I never managed to win a prize and I just could not figure it out. I was sure that I was reading more books than anybody in my school. Well, I found a little certificate from 1999 and I think I figured out what the problem was. I read 30 books um, from this particular uh, fundraising contest and I raised a very sad $35. So luckily as an adult, I can appreciate that actually charities don't care about how much personal effort you put in. They care about how many dollars they raise to put towards their cause. But I did put in that, that effort, folks. I did put in that effort. Finally, perfectly preserved, is a booklet from the now extinct bookstore Angus and Robertson with their top 100 books. Unfortunately, 
It doesn't have a date on it, so I cannot say for certain which year this particular Top 100 list was released, though it was definitely well before all the retail st stores closed down alongside book giant Borders in 2009. So I have a sneaky suspicion that this one was from 2005 or maybe early 2006 when I had just finished high school and I was ready to take up reading again with a vengeance now all my exams were done. I set myself the goal of reading all 100 books on the list. Well, I cracked open the booklet and counted around 31 ticks against 100 books. Not too bad, third of the way. Anyway, so it had been over 10 years since I first set myself this challenge. So I decided to update it to see how many books I've now read on the list and I am now at 71 books. I hadn't made much commentary about the books I read in my first attempt um, because I did not book blog then and hilariously the only book that got anything more than a tick was Cross Stitch by Diana Gabaldon which of course is the first book in the now famous Outlander series. I wrote next to this book two letters VG. Obviously, short for very good. So, the finalists for the 2017 Hugo Awards have been announced, and there has been a bit of controversy around the Hugos for the last couple of years with right-wing sci-fi fantasy authors complaining that the awards are discriminating because they are too left-wing. You can read more about the hilariously named Sad Puppy Saga, but for those of you who have lives, the winners will be announced at the 75th World Science Fiction Convention, Worldcon 75, um, in early August. German illustrator Wolf Erlbruch, I think that's how you say that, has won the Astrid Lindgren Memorial Award worth 445,000 British pounds. The award which was established in 2002, recognizes his body of work and is the largest cash prize for children's literature out there. Um, speaking of children's literature, the American Library Association has released its 2016 list of top 10 most challenged books. In 2016, the American Library Association re received 323 challenges from members of the public about books that they felt children should not be allowed to read. Book censorship is something I've talked about on this podcast uh, in many episodes, and children's books often seem to be at the centre of censorship. At the top of the list is award-winning graphic novel This One Summer by cousins Mariko Tamaki and Julian Tamaki, which is definitely on my to-read list. Band Books Week put together a fun little video about the list, and you can check that out in the links below. Here in Canberra, there's been a bit of book controversy of our own, with news breaking that local primary school Aranda Primary decommissioned its school library to use the space for more classrooms. The school has increased its capacity from 550 students to 625, and the move has drawn criticisms from a number of areas in the community, and the Aranda Parents and Citizens Association has written a letter of complaint. In more cheerful news, National Simultaneous Storytime is coming up on the 24th of May 2017, and the book selected for its 17th year is The Cow Tripped Over the Moon by Tony Wilson and Laura Wood. Anyone can join. It officially takes place at 11am, and you can check out the website to find if there is an event on near you, with a VIP reader even, or you can just read the book yourself at home. Okay, so there are a couple of book releases I'll just quickly talk about and then we will get into the real substance of the news this month, which is TV and film adaptations. So, 
Aboriginal author Dr. Anita Heiss's new book, Our Race for Reconciliation, is scheduled for release on the 1st of May. The novel will follow a young girl who meets her hero, Kathy Freeman, and goes on a trip to Sydney with her family to celebrate Indigenous heritage um, and, and take steps towards reconciliation. Uh, the creators of the Aussie TV fantasy series Clever Man, starring a mostly Aboriginal cast, have announced a new graphic novel adaptation of the show. And they've shared a taster page of what it's going to look like, and I am really intrigued. Aussie author Tara Moss has announced that she's taking time away from her social media accounts to work on her PhD and her 12th novel. It's not clear yet whether it's going to be another book in one of her two series or, or a standalone crime novel or something completely different. So in perfect timing with the release of The Handmaid's Tale, the TV adaptation of Margaret Atwood's famous dystopian novel, Graphic artists Paula Scher and Abbott Miller have put together a public artwork in New York City where passers-by can help themselves to one of 4,000 free copies of the original book. Also, for Aussie listeners who want to know when they can watch the show, it's going to be available on SBS On Demand from the 6th of July and you'll be able to stream the entire thing. An extended trailer has been released for the film adaptation of Daphne du Maurier's uh, novel Rebecca, and it looks dark and steamy, and I'm going to have to hurry up and read it before it's released in cinemas in June. Berlin Syndrome, a film adaptation of Melanie Joosten's novel by the same name, came out in April, and I went to go see it with a group, including one of Melanie's relatives. The film deviated a huge amount from the book's original story, and look, I'm not convinced it was for the better. A lot of the material about the main character's mental health was excluded, and I felt like the film's ending was unnecessarily dramatic instead of uh, much more pointed like it was in the book. Okay, so the only Harry Potter news, apart from me finding a folder full of stickers, um, is pretty exciting Harry Potter news in that some casting has been announced for the next Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them film. Callum Turner has been cast to pay, play uh, Newton Scamander's older brother Theseus, although the actor himself is actually younger than actor Eddie Redmayne. Extremely interestingly, actor Jude Law has been cast as a young Albus Dumbledore, and I am very excited to see what he makes of the role. But after the actor for Gellert Grindelwald was revealed at the end of the last film, and don't worry, I won't give you any spoilers if you haven't seen it, um, I am a bit skeptical about how the next film in the series, or even the rest of the series, is going to go. Okay, finally, the most epic film adaptation news was definitely the announcement that the epic fantasy series The Wheel of Time by Robert Jordan, who actually died before the series was finished and authorised um, fantasy writer Brandon Sanderson to finish, it, uh, finish off the final instalments, is finally being turned into a TV show by Sony. Now, I have not read this series because it is 13 books long and I just do not have the time or the inclination, but I have it on good authority that it is good and I am happy to Game of Thrones this one and yes, Game of Thrones is a verb and just sit back and watch the TV show when it finally comes out. here today with Kim Morton, a published writer who's passionate about young adult fiction and who works at a bookstore. How are you doing, Kim? I'm good, thanks. Thanks so much for being here today. My pleasure. 
Uh, so, would you like to first of all tell us a little bit about your writing, your writing goals, especially around creating space for queer writers? Yeah. Okay. Well, when you say published writer, that's a little bit strong. I've maybe published the one thing that I ever actually got paid for, um, and a couple other works I did were for, were volunteer publications for a. Uh, a queer youth group zine yep. which you you know we had the one limited print run you can't find it anymore i threw out all my old copies recently so what yeah. i'm hearing is you've been published multiple times <laughs> <laughs> three times okay yeah um yeah so uh queer fiction is really important to me because yep. i don't think there's a lot of it except maybe in the erotica space <laughs> um i'm especially uh passionate about ya that features queer characters but i find that a lot of it it's all about the fact of being queer or the conflict or the character development centers around the character being gay or lesbian or whatever and how yep. they deal with that and um unless about the story with being queer as an incidental yeah characteristic of yeah something. yeah that, that and that's more of what like what i'd like to see because my, my particular area of interest is sci-fi and fantasy yeah and yeah you know, i read this stuff and i get so frustrated because uh well, for starters, being a being a gay man myself, I'm aware of the issues. Yeah. You know, yeah. I I don't need to read about queer issues. I deal with queer issues every day. Yeah. Um, and I it would just be really nice for once to see gay characters being the hero of something rather than I guess I feel it's more like they're the victim of something or most often of the time. The villain. Yes. Yes. That's yeah. yeah that's that's like a whole other that's thing. Whole... Like we could have a whole other discussion about that. Yeah, um, yeah, but uh, yeah, like uh, when the plot develops, you know, like coming out and yep. stuff like that, or any discrimination you might face. Like, yep. And a lot of the time, I feel like that stuff isn't really for a young queer person. It's for straight people, yeah. in a sense. So it's yeah. more educational rather. Than yeah, that's yeah. that's sort of what I'm getting at. It's like I just I just want a book about young gay men where the only problems they face are, I don't know, learning how to ride dragons or fighting giant protozoa from outer space, which is <laughs> a couple ideas I'm sort of working on. So, yeah, I reckon that would be nice for a change. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. So you're obviously very passionate about um, young adult fiction. Uh, so now you are involved with the um, Children's Book Council of Australia. Yeah. And they've been running their annual book awards since... Uh, 1946. Mm. So the main reason Kim's on here today um, is to give us a little bit of behind the scenes um, in what goes on in selecting winners. So um, how did you first get involved in the CBC? Yeah. Well, so you know I work at a bookstore, Harry yep. Hartog in Woden. That's where yep. we met. And uh, basically the opportunity almost fell into my lap. Uh, the president of the ACT chapter of the CBCA started shopping at our store regularly because we like to be involved in the community yep. like the philosophy of the bookstore is to be involved with the community and to host our own events and to get involved with other people's events you know, yep. to get people really interested in books again yep. basically is because they think that that that's sort of gone away in this day and age and they sort of want to bring it back yeah yeah and get people reading more stuff than just harry potter yeah so many other books out there. oh god you should see me trying to get my sister to read something other than harry potter she i mean she likes a lot of the classic sci-fi she'll read 1984 and stuff but she won't read much that's new yeah. and she won't read any fantasy at all yeah. which is a shame because i think fantasy and sci-fi are great genres and uh it's depressing to see other people look down on them yeah and really cutting edge like you look at stuff in the hugo Mm. And like it's always so cutting edge with social issues and genre and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, so, okay, and so how long have you been with the CBCA for? So, um, my membership was for a year. It, it recently expired. You have to keep renewing it. Yeah. Um, and my judging commitment, uh, which we can talk a little bit about more in a minute, that was supposed to be for two years, but because of uh, personal stuff, yep. I had to step away after this year. So yep. the so the space has been freed up for someone else who's really passionate about kids' books to have oh. their shot at judging. So if any of my listeners are interested in getting involved, now is the time. I think so, um, yeah. unless it's already over, because I, I, like I said, um, I'm not a member anymore, so I don't get the emails and stuff. But uh, you can always apply anytime, yep. and when and when judging opportunities open up, you know they'll look at the applications and decide who. Because and it's not very hard to do it all. I only had to answer a couple of questions, but you do need a working with formidable people card, which okay. is very easy to get. Yeah, and I'll link the website so uh, people who are interested can check that out themselves. Um, so. What prompted you to take that next step and become a judge? So what happened basically was I was I was asked. The president of the CBCA chapter, uh, sorry, of the ACT chapter of the CBCA approached me. We'd, yep. uh, we'd, we'd been sort of talking for a while when she would come into the store and I'd happened to mention that I was really interested in young adult fiction and that my thesis at university was actually in young adult fiction. Yeah, right. And, um, and she thought that was interesting and she approached me because she thought, um, well, a lot of the judges are teacher librarians yep, so okay. that and and it's a, it's a stereotype there are you know anybody can be a teacher librarian but you do find it it's a it's usually women especially yep. older women yep. and she thought it would be really good to get in a, f- a few different perspectives and she approached me specifically because I'm young yep. and I'm a bookseller yep. and, and being male was a little bit of a part of it too yeah yeah uh, so and she wanted me to add my perspective and I, I, you know, it's a little bit of, ex- of an experiment to see if it works out, basically. Yep, yep. Yeah. And, and then uh, maybe you get a, a different range of books that way. It's probably really good insight as well to learn to, I don't know, mm. think about the craft of making children's books in, mm. in more of an analytical way rather than a consumer way. Um, so, well, which brings me to my next question. Um, what do you in particular look for when you're judging books? So. In, in your opinion, what makes an excellent mm. children's book? So, in my opinion, um, a children's book has to be written by someone who really understands children and knows what they like. And there's a few big authors I could point to, like Andy Griffiths, for instance, yeah. like really yeah. popular with children. Might and um, but judging awards is completely different. Um, and uh, what my uh, supervisor used to say, my thesis supervisor, what he used to say in lectures was, if you want to know which books kids are actually reading, don't look at awards lists, don't look at bestsellers, look at which books most often get stolen from bookstores or libraries. Ah, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, so that was his position on it. And I can sort of see that. And and like, and like when, when I was judging it was made very clear that I had to step back a bit and try and be a bit more objective rather yeah. than inject so much of my personal opinion into things. Yeah, yeah. Because the CBCA awards specifically look for the books that have the most literary merit. Yeah. And they have a, and and that that can be a bit vague and broad, but they also have a special rubric to help you to help guide you. Yeah. Um, and uh, see which books most meet the qualities that they consider to be indicative of, of a literary work. Yeah. So, so in a sense, it was a bit difficult because I sort of have to put my "Do I like this?" brain, you know, up on the shelf, and it's got. And, and what I'm asking is not is it not is it not is is it, is it a good book or a fun book? Is it a literary book? 
and um, the comparison the com when I had when we talked about it the comparison they used was like the difference between candy and vegetables oh, you know okay. like you, you can like it's it's fine to have candy but you have to eat your vegetables you know yeah yeah and what we're judging is we're judging vegetables here today sort of yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, okay um, and so the shortlist for the CBCA Awards uh, was released in March, and listeners might remember I chatted about that earlier this year. And uh, the winners are going to be announced on the 18th of August, I believe. Yes, at a special yeah. ceremony in Hobart. Oh, in Hobart? Yeah. So are you going to go? No. Okay. I, yeah, no. Uh, you have to make your own way there. <laughs> yeah, and we are in Canberra, and uh, it's sometimes a little bit onerous to get anywhere from here. Mm. So that's very fair, going across the seas. Is it in Hobart every year, or does it move around? It moves around, yeah. yeah. Okay. So this year it's in Tasmania, but a couple, of, uh, one major event happened in here. Yep. And there was another one held elsewhere that I can't quite remember at the moment. But they have their three major events where they announce the um, the notables basically yep. before they go onto the shortlist, and then the winners and the honor books, which honor book is basically runner up. Those will be announced in August. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. And those events move around, so every year they're at a different place. Yeah. Um, and so I know you can't give us any spoilers about who's going to win and who isn't going to win, um, but could you maybe give us some more general comments about the quality of this year's entrance and some of the things that stood out to you about the writing that you were judging? Yeah. So what I look for personally uh, is stuff that's really different. Yeah. And I like to think a few different things to get in there. It's not just me judging the younger readers category, which just to clarify is sort of like early chapter books mostly with yeah. a few other things thrown I think, in. I think it's like yeah. seven to 12 or something like that. Yeah. We, yeah. The way they phrased it to me was that uh, younger readers covers basically all of primary school. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. So everything all the way from like early chapter books up to fairly dense, almost teen fiction type stuff, but not quite teen fiction. So to be the category that you classics like. Uh, goosebumps or pony pals or something we call it. Yes, yeah, that, that, that seems accurate, yeah. yeah. Um, and so, yeah, did, did you have any yeah, big thoughts so, about this year's entrance? Well, anybody can be submitted yep. as long as the book was published in Australia. Okay. And we, you get a really interesting mix of stuff that is going to be really popular and stuff that might not be so much popular and self-published stuff and that was interesting the self-published stuff some of it is really good yeah especially um there was this really interesting book from an indigenous guy about a story about his father and how he was given his english name and that's and that and it looks like a picture book but it was placed in the younger readers category and that didn't quite make it through but i thought it was a really interesting book yeah and uh, and like it wasn't making any judgments but it, like it was just reiterating the facts of a very but it was also a very personal story yeah you know because it deals specifically with his family and his family history and that's the kind of book that um if like because getting into the short list of the cbca is a big deal every school across australia will buy the books that are on the short list yeah and if it had made it through that would have been a big deal but at the same time it is self-published and it would have been hard to find and it's just a shame that stuff like that is not seen like it's difficult to find in bookstores I've had yeah. I've had customers I, I, I did once have an indigenous lady come to me at work and say that there were a lot of books about indigenous culture being written by non-indigenous people yeah. and she wanted to know where the stuff written by indigenous people was and I had to say you know that is a good question and yeah. I, rec I like to think Harry Hartog booksellers are pretty fair in that regard we're yeah. very supportive of local authors if someone wants their book on our, on our shelf we will take it usually yeah. Yeah. Um, but also, like, considering our location, 
like it can be hard just to find that stuff and, yeah. and they won't necessarily know to come in and offer it yeah yeah um yeah, so that was a book that I wished had gotten in, but also a lot of the self-published stuff is really rubbish. I'm yeah, sorry, but yeah. it is. But but most of the stuff I thought was quite good, and it is really hard to pick. And uh, and that's why there's the three of us is um, and and we and we make the judge uh, the decisions are made over conference calls and finally with uh, with an evening of rigorous voting. <laughs> yeah. So and so. And your per- and the thing you to- and the thing you have to make peace with is that your your personal favorite book, you know, the one you really want to see win, might not make it through. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what happened to me is the one I absolutely loved did not make it through because the other judges didn't think it was quite there. Yeah. And I can kind of see their point. Um, but there were two books on there that I thought were quite good, and another one by an indigenous author that did make the shortlist. I'm pretty sure is uh, it's Mrs. Whitlam by uh, what's his name Bruce Pascoe. Uh, also about an indigenous girl and it looks like it, it's very short and really quick to read and it looks like a standard girl and her horse story but it is not yeah yeah and yeah so that was a, and that was a really good one too because like it's very short and but there's so much in there to unpack yeah. sort of I thought it was really good and I gave it to my mother to read as well and she cried because <laughs> she thought it was so beautiful yeah. Oh, that's always a good testimony. Mm. Yeah, and uh, Dragonfly Song was another of my personal favourites that did make the shortlist. Yeah. And um, it's set in ancient Greece, and it's about a little girl who is outcast from society because she is orphaned, and they considered her to be cursed by the gods. And um, she ends up taking an opportunity to be sent to another island to compete in their uh, sort of bull jumping games you know which are deadly which can kill you yeah. because um she because she sees it as an opportunity for a better life yeah. basically and yeah you know, and her life is so terrible that um you know she's like if i die it's not such a big deal but this is a chance for a better life yeah, yeah and, I, and i'll take it even though it's dangerous basically and she was a really interesting character i don't want to say I mean, people who have read The Hunger Games, there'll be similar themes in there, but I think it's different enough by definitely to stand out. And what Wendy or the author did, you know, she also wrote Nim- Nim's Island books. Yeah. But what she did with Dragonfly Song is, uh, it's a combination of prose and poetry. And yeah, and um, yeah, you'll find that in the YA genre, there's a, quite a few verse novels going around now that are almost all poetry. And uh, yeah, some kids really like that stuff. It's interesting. Yeah, that's really yeah. interesting. Um, but, uh, but yeah, Dragonfly Song is a mix of prose and poetry. And I really liked that because it sort of evoked for me the feeling of the old Greek plays where you have the chorus. Yeah, and I felt like the poetry was sort of representative of what would be the chorus. And it sort of, and it sort of, it really pulls you into how the character feels. Yeah. Because, you know, poetry is all about emotions and the senses rather than like, Whereas prose is like a, a flat layout of what is happening and where you are, whereas the poetry really like gives you the feeling of it, if not necessarily the facts. If you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Do you think Do you think over time children's books are getting more diverse? I think so. I. I think yeah. I think art has always been sort of like art and literature has always sort of been like the forerunner of that sort of thing, and it can yeah. be slow going. Yeah. I know recently publishers have started specifically voicing interest in looking for books from LGBT authors and books from people of color, yeah. and, you know, and and books from people living with disabilities and that sort of thing. So they're really interested. They're starting to get 
more interested in minority voices but the thing is it's a long process yeah and um from you know from submitting a manuscript to the book getting on the shelf can take a year or more yeah. so if it even gets accepted yeah and and i've noticed a lot of publishers have started opening uh like categories to try and encourage mm. more diverse authors yeah. to submit their books but obviously like you say um you know with, with that book that was entered by um yeah. The indigenous author. Yeah, it's hard for people to get their foot in the door yeah. sometimes. Yeah, there there are small there's a lot of there are small specialist publishers. Uh, there's one based in Broome that deals almost solely with indigenous stories, but yeah, that right. stuff doesn't make it to Canberra. Is yeah. the thing like you won't find it in most of the bookstores. You have to go looking for it. Yeah, and it's really important for mainstream publishers to sort of get on board with in, being more uh, inclusive of minority yeah. voices. Yeah. And they are doing that, and that's great. Um, I wish it had happened a little bit sooner and a little bit faster. But uh, and and you'll find like you'll find looking through the bookshelf that most of the characters are not going to be that diverse yeah. still today. But I like to think we're moving forward in that regard. Oh, brilliant! Well, thank you so much for chatting to us today, Kim. No worries. It was it was a pleasure. <laughs> I managed to get through six books in April, so I'll quickly chat about a few of them. After seeing her speak last year and getting my book signed, I was really looking forward to reading Melina Marchetta's new novel, Tell the Truth, Shame the Devil. I wasn't quite sure what to expect, but it ended up being much more complex than I thought it would be. And although it has been some time since she wrote Looking for Alibrandi, Marchetta is clearly not out of touch at all when it comes to teenage girls and the issues that they face. After the TV series was recently released on Netflix, I finally got around to reading the first book in Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events. I can definitely see how it's appealing to kids, but I think I maybe left it a little bit too late to read it um, because I felt like as an adult, I had to suspend a lot of disbelief just to get through the plot. I also tackled my very pretty anniversary edition of John Green's Looking for Alaska. I'm still not quite sure where my feelings lie with respect to this one. It is a very engaging story, but at the same time I think Green fell prey to a lot of teenage tropes. And when you compare it to something by like, you know, Melina Marchetta for example, it just it just does not quite compare. Finally, I read A Thousand Splendid Sons by Khaled Hosseini, and look, without mincing words, I was really disappointed. I had been absolutely blown away by his earlier novel, The Kite Runner, and the convincing fallibility of the narrator. Um, but this book was so two-dimensional in comparison, and the characters, they just were like cardboard cutouts. They just did not seem like real people. All right, readers, that's it from me. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode in June.